Lord, every Sunday we're reminded of the power of your resurrection. And especially on this day, this time in spring, we focus on the wonderful reality of your conquering sin, overcoming death, coming out of the tomb alive, and being placed at the Father's right hand in glory. These are encouraging things, and we say we believe them. But Lord, help our unbelief. For while we profess in creed, we don't always translate to conduct. I pray this morning, Lord, that will change for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. A golfer was having a horrible round of golf, playing so poorly he wanted to quit. Finally decided he would. He grabbed his golf bag filled with his clubs, walked over to a water hazard and tossed them in as far as he could. Stormed off the course, and his playing buddies were shocked. But they were encouraged a few minutes later because the guy came back. Finally, he came to his senses. He waded down into the water to retrieve his golf bag and picked it up. He opened up one of the pockets, pulled out his car keys, and throw the rest of the bag <laughs> back into the water and stormed off the course. You know, you and I do some pretty foolish things when we're discouraged, don't we? We do some pretty foolish things. We, we believe that God doesn't care for us that he's not aware of our problem. Or sometimes maybe we even question, is he alive? It was John R. W. Stott who said the Christian's chief occupational hazards are these, depression and discouragement. And it seems to be true, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes little things get us down, Obviously, the big things are there to discourage us. People pray, and they don't get the answers that they want to their prayers. They're not making the progress that they want to in their Christian life. They feel like they ought to be further down the road, and they're still battling with habits that they've faced for decades. The world seems to be worse now than it ever was. There's a broken relationship that was very close, and now you feel the scars and the emotional wounds. You've lost a loved one. You can't get over it. You lost your job. Now there's financial pressures. Everything seems to come in on us, and we began to feel this pressure, and we are controlled by despair. We're disillusioned with God. I want you to know that that describes what it was like on the very first Easter. Think about it. The Christians were really discouraged, especially after the crucifixion, but it went all the way up into the, into the first Easter Sunday. In the morning, the ladies who came to the tomb and saw the tomb empty went running to the apostles, the apostles, no less. And they said, the tomb is empty, and Jesus has come up out of the grave and the Bible tells us in Luke 24 that this seemed to the apostles like nonsense. <laughs> they wouldn't believe it. That afternoon, there were two individuals, disciples, going 
on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they were talking about how sad they were and how disappointed they were that Jesus died and the tomb is empty. They, they, they can't find the body now, and they were so discouraged, and Jesus begins to walk with them on the road. He sees them, and he says, what are you guys talking about as you are so discouraged? And they stood still, their faces downcast. That was in the afternoon. The evening of the first Easter found the ten disciples, minus Thomas, in the upper room with the door locked, John 20 says, for fear of the Jews. So in the morning, this is nonsense. In the afternoon, I'm going home and quitting. I'm so discouraged. And in the evening, they're behind locked doors for fear of their life. That's what happened on the first Easter. Discouragement and despair everywhere. But what transforms a life, any Christian's life, is when that believer comes under the dominance of some great spiritual truth. Read the biographies of great Christians, and it was at some point in their life with some wonderful spiritual truth grabbed hold of their head and hearts, and they were never the same. And I submit to you the great truth that changed the world is that Jesus is alive. If you're feeling discouraged, then join the club with the first century Christians on that first Easter. And let's pray that we can get encouraged just like they did. In fact, we have the pathway to encouragement found in Matthew chapter 28. Let's turn there. Matthew 28. And look at some reasons to be encouraged on this Easter Sunday 2014. Matthew chapter 28, and I want to begin reading with verse 1. Last chapter, first book, of the New Testament. The Bible says, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now I have to stop here for a moment and let you know that every time I read this, I think of an angel with an attitude. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, he, he rolls the stone away, and there's this huge earthquake. And then once the stone is rolled away, he gets on top of it and just, he sat on it. Kind of like, look at this. Now, there are Roman soldiers around watching all of this, or at least some of it. Verse 4, the guards, Roman guards, were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Why? Well, verse 3 says his appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. So the earth is trembling and the stone is rolling and an angel who's bright like lightning sitting on the stone. Well, the guards shook because of the earthquake and then they shook when they saw the angel and then they fainted as though they were dead. And that's when the women came to the tomb. The angel said to the women, verse 5, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Now, there are some reasons for encouragement in this chapter, and here's reason number one, the vacant tomb. Verse 6, he is not here. Come see where he lay. 
They came to bring spices for the body. They didn't embalm in those days, and the women were doing what was normally done for a loved one. But they'd have to find someone to roll that huge stone away so they could get in. By the way, remember this. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let human beings in. Jesus didn't need to have that stone rolled away. But it had been rolled away, and they were going to anoint the body. But it wasn't there. They were frightened by the earthquake. The women were startled by the angels, alarmed. And they were disappointed at first when they saw the empty tomb. Now, isn't it amazing that the things that God intends to bring us great blessing, we usually see as a curse? You ever think about that? What about your empty tombs? The things that bring you discouragement, the things that that seem to contradict me and, and oppose me and bring pain to me, I see as real negatives, but sometimes God has a plan to make it positive. Was not the cross a negative that turned out to be a great positive? Wasn't Jesus crucified by wicked hands and yet given up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God? Is it not that God wants to give us some empty tombs and right away we think this is a bad thing when in reality it's the greatest thing that ever happened? It was Mary Magdalene later on who, when she saw Jesus, not knowing it was Jesus, thought he was the gardener, said, if you've taken the body, tell me where you've taken it. The empty tomb discouraged her. It was the two men on the road to Emmaus, or the two people. We don't know that they were both men. One was. Cleopas and his companion, who when Jesus engaged them in conversation, said, here's the reason we're discouraged. The women went to the tomb, and they found it empty, and they can't find his body. That's why we're so upset. <laughs> Guys, the empty tomb is the cradle of the church. What would have happened if that tomb was occupied and was still occupied today? Tombs are amazing, curious things. People take vacations to see tombs. You ever been to Lincoln's tomb in Springfield? Yeah. And it's fascinating because Lincoln's there, although there are a few conspiracy theories that say he isn't, but he's there. You go to Red Square in Russia, and Lenin's tomb is there. In fact, he's in a glass case. You can see him. He looks better today than he did years ago. <laughs> but the fascinating thing about it is there he is, this uh, renowned world leader. The thing that's so fascinating about the tomb is he's there. The thing that's fascinating about the tomb of Jesus is he's not there. In fact, we don't even know where the tomb is. There's a couple choices when you go to Jerusalem, and they're both empty, by the way. And that is... Amazing. Voltaire, the French humanist, infidel, was, was quite a cocky character. He was filled with a lot of self and ego. He once said Christianity was founded by 12 ignorant fishermen, and this one intelligent, intelligent Frenchman will destroy it all. By the way, after Voltaire died, they used his printing press to make Bibles and spread them throughout France. <laughs> Guess who won that one? 
But Voltaire said Christianity is built on an empty tomb. To which I say, amen. And amen. The empty tomb is there for our encouragement. One time a Muslim was speaking with a Christian missionary, and the Muslim who believes in Muhammad and follows Islam said, we have something that you Christians don't have. We can go to Mecca and see the tomb of our leader, and Muhammad is there, buried. To which the Christian responded by saying, yes, that is the difference. Your leader is dead. Ours is still alive. <laughs> Big difference. The vacant tomb. But catch this in verse 6. He is not here. He is risen just as he what? Said. He told them this was going to happen, and they didn't catch it. How many things does God tell us in his word are going to happen, and when they happen, we act shocked? Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial which is to test you as though some strange thing is happening to you. And yet what happens when you and I get in a pickle for the first time? We say, why me? How could this happen to me? Peter said it was going to. Go back a few chapters to the left. Chapter 16, Matthew 16. This was up in Caesarea Philippi, in the northern part of Israel. And Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some, the, the disciples responded by saying, some think you're John the Baptist, and others a prophet, and some say you're Elijah. Jesus said to the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter stood up and said one of the greatest things he's ever said. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, that's right. And flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father in heaven did. And then Jesus went on to say, this is verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised again on the third day. From the north part of Israel, Jesus then began his journey all the way down to Jerusalem to be crucified in at least three different occasions. At least three different times, he said to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. The leaders are going to try me and have me crucified, and I'll be buried, but I'll rise out of the grave. And they didn't get it. Now, I know that we are better stock than those, those early disciples. For all of us read the Scripture and say, boy, if I had been there, it would have been a different story. My friend, no, it wouldn't have. It would have flew over your head just like all the rest. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they kind of did one of these numbers. Ah, now I get it. Now I see what he said. But Jesus predicted it time and time again. And I think this is one of the most amazing things. If you can pull off the resurrection, you can do just about anything else, can't you? That's what Wilbur Smith said. This great Christian scholar said, if our Lord frequently said with great detail that he was going to Jerusalem to be put to death, and after that on the third day he would rise again from the grave, and this prediction came true, then it has always seemed to me that everything else our Lord ever said must also be true. Everything else he also said is true. This book is reliable. 
And the resurrection proves it. And that's why we need to be encouraged. He said he would come out of the tomb, and he did, and the tomb is empty. Be encouraged. Jesus is alive. There's a second reason to be encouraged. Look at verse 7. He said, then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And after he ran into some of the women later on that morning, verse 10, Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Here's the second reason to be encouraged. The visible Christ. He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. It's not a figment of your imagination. He is the real, living Christ. Now, there were no eyewitnesses of the resurrection. No one was in the tomb watching the body begin to vibrate and stand on its own. No one saw the grave clothes fall off and the body go through solid rock and then materialize again. No one saw all of that. But what you do have in the scriptures in those first 40 days after the resurrection are no less than 11 different appearances of Jesus. 11. Let me just mention them to you quickly. The first, the women who came to the tomb and saw him. This was a little later on that morning. Mary Magdalene saw him by herself and thought he was a gardener. Peter, in the afternoon on Sunday saw Jesus in Jerusalem, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. The two men on the road to Emmaus saw him. The ten disciples in the upper room without Thomas, and a week later the ten disciples with Thomas saw Jesus. By the way, that first Sunday night in the upper room, when they saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. And Jesus said, look at me, flesh and blood. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood like I do. Now, I don't know what kind of flesh and blood it was, but it's not immaterial. It is corporal, visible. You could hear his voice. You could see him. You could touch him. He had flesh and bones. He was real. It was somehow that body that was crucified, now alive, uniquely so. Disciples still didn't get it, so Jesus said, give me a piece of your dinner, would you please? Maybe not with that attitude. Give me a piece of your fish. Jesus took it and ate it and said, a ghost can't do this. Later on, Jesus appears to the seven disciples as they're fishing in the Sea of Galilee and again provides fish, shows them that he can eat fish. Eleven disciples see him in Galilee as was predicted in verse 10 of Matthew 28. Go to Galilee. There you will see me. 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 15 that over 500 people saw him at the same time. For those of you who think that maybe it was just a hallucination of a few disciples who really wanted to see him so badly that they projected his appearance and it wasn't real, 500 people cannot have an, a hallucination at the same time. It's impossible. And then Jesus appeared to Peter, 1 Corinthians says. We know that. Peter is the one who denied him. And then he appeared to James, his half-brother. 
who up to that point had not believed in him. And then, of course, he appeared to the disciples who saw him ascend from the Mount of Olives at the Ascension. Now, someone has calculated all of this and said, if you were to bring these witnesses into a court of law and gave each witness 15 minutes, it would take 13 days of 10 hours every day of testimony to let the witnesses parade by to defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any court of law with reliable witnesses is going to be overwhelmed by such evidence. In fact, one of the greatest lawyers who ever lived, Edward Clark, served on the British High Court, said, to me, the evidence is conclusive. Over and over again, I have secured the verdict on evidence not so compelling. He says, as a lawyer, I accept the gospel evidence unreservedly as testimony of truthful men to facts that they could validate. No eyewitness of the actual resurrection, all kinds of eyewitnesses of the visible bodily appearance of Christ. I serve a risen Savior, and he's in this world today. I know he's, that he's with me, no matter what men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. Just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. Jesus lives. He lives today. He's in this room, although not visible. Sometimes I would like to see him, wouldn't you? But my friend, if we were to see him visibly, I'm not sure we could take it because everyone who saw him visibly ended up, at least later on, falling down on their face and wanting to die. He is so holy. It is interesting, though, that many missionaries are telling us that one of the things that is moving people from Islam to Christianity, one of the things that is causing people to convert to Christianity is that they're having dreams of seeing Jesus. And you know, I'm not given to a lot of dreams and visions. I can only tell you what reliable missionaries are telling us all over the Muslim world. Jesus is alive. That's a great encouragement. So let's go to the third and final one that I see in the text here in Matthew 28. This is found in verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the disciples... What you have now is a victorious, excited, joyful church. Think about it for a moment. At the crucifixion, everyone fled. Peter denied. Even after the resurrection, early on, they were huddled for fear of the Jews, hiding. People were going back home and giving up the ministry. No one was thinking about somehow creating a lie that the world would believe. The disciples stole the body. They were glad that Jesus had a nice resting place in a tomb never used before. No one thought of trying to steal the body and then proclaim that he is alive. By the way, if they did that, they never would have given their lives for a lie. Something happened that changed those disciples. They came under the dominant thought of a biblical truth that Jesus is alive. 
And then Peter, the denier, becomes Peter, the preacher. He stands in the open temple courts of Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus is alive. They arrest him, beat him up a little bit, say, don't you do this again, and he's out there the next morning doing it again. What changed the disciples so that the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, begins to go out to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth, to Asia Minor and Europe and every continent, so that two-thirds, over two-thirds of the world now claims to be Christian. What in the world has happened? Jesus is alive. People have come under that dominant truth, and their hearts are filled with boldness and joy. And they do exactly what the angel told these women to do. Go and tell others that Jesus is alive. And that's exactly what the Christian church has done. Now, it is amazing that the church is alive today, that the church exists today in light of its, at times, foolish decisions, open hypocrisy, sometimes blatant racism. All kinds of things have infiltrated the church and weakened it at times, but the church has never died. Why? Because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand against it. And true Christianity, the true faith of the Bible, continues to spread, and one of the greatest places where it's spreading today is in Iran. As people hear the gospel of Christ, and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop the glorious, victorious church. It's because of the resurrection. It's because people have seen Christ and believed in Jesus Christ. It's like the story of Lee Strobel, who was an atheist back in 1980, graduate of Yale Law School, honored journalist, working with the Chicago Tribune, decided to prove that Christ did not come out of that tomb. He would, did all the evidence. The unique thing about Lee was this. He was objective. And when he gathered the evidence, he became a Christian. He didn't write against Christ. He embraced Christ and wrote a book in 1998 called The Case for Christ. The Case for Christ. If you've never read that, let me encourage you to pick it up. He also wrote The Case for Easter in which he brings in all this evidence he uncovered and shows that it is overwhelming to any open and objective mind, then why do some people not believe in Christ? The answer is rather simple. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You don't believe in Christ because you've got a moral problem. You love your sin too much. You're afraid to come to the light because the light will expose you. You're afraid to investigate because it might prove you wrong. All of us have moral problems. That's why Jesus died. He died to wash our sin away. And he says, if you'll come to me, I will embrace you by forgiving you of your sins. I will come into your heart and save you, and I will give you light and life and joy and victory. And because I live, you shall live forevermore. I think one of the weaknesses of the church in the 21st century is this. We have not come under the dominant doctrine and truth of the living Christ, 
I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, if we really believed that Jesus was alive, would we not be filled with more courage and more joy? Would we not somehow overcome discouragement a little more often than we do? I'm not saying we'd never grieve. I'm not saying we'd never fall. I'm saying we'd quickly get up because the living Christ was there to take hold of our hand. That, to me, is thrilling. And I pray for myself. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The resurrection is either the greatest miracle history has ever recorded or the world's greatest delusion. But to us who believe, it's the power of God. The cross and the empty tomb, the visible Christ, the victorious church. I love the story that comes to us out of the Napoleonic Wars. The diminutive emperor was sweeping across Europe, seizing everything under his control. One of his generals took part of the French army to a little border town, the border of Austria, planning to attack in the morning, and like every other town in that region, to seize control, to take anyone's life who would resist. They were simply waiting for daybreak. French army on the hill, little group of people in the town of Feldkirk in the valley. They got the town council together and said, what are we going to do? There's nothing we can do. We can't resist the army. Until finally the pastor stood up and said, you know, it's, it's Easter. I think what we ought to do is just ring the Easter bells in the church belfry like we do every Easter. And then he made this amazing statement. He said, we, we know our own weakness, but we don't know God's power. So they rang the bells. During the night, the bells began to ring loud and long and cheerful. And the French army on the hill thought the bells meant that reinforcements had come in during the night. And they retreated without attacking. And the village was saved. Isn't that a great parable? I mean, doesn't it teach us that you and I know our weakness and there are obstacles that are around, surrounding us that will defeat us? In no way can we win unless we began to ring the bells of the resurrection, to grab hold of the truth that Jesus lives, to let those bells ring in our heart and in our soul and grab hold of our lives and go out victorious. Not just believing, but believing. And there's a huge difference. Discouragement must die in the presence of him who conquered death. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the discouragements of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Give to us, Lord, a clear understanding from the Scriptures that you are alive. Let us intellectually, emotionally, 
understand the ramifications of this great truth. May it dominate us to the place where we order our lives based upon its reality and joyfully go forward sharing the good news with others. In Jesus' name we pray.